0: Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the gospel of Matthew and and the the beauty um, of the story of our Lord Jesus coming to earth. Father, we thank you, Lord, for his life. Um, We thank you, Lord, for his teaching. We thank you for the salvation that is found in him. Father, we pray that as we continue our study through the Sermon of the Mount, uh, wrapping up the, the Beatitudes, Lord, we pray that you would, uh, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, Lord, that you would help us uh, to truly subject ourselves to your teaching. Lord, may uh, we we be honest with ourselves. May we allow you to convict us, Father, um, for in our conviction, Lord, as we hear your voice, um, Lord, that is where you do um, just an amazing work of helping us. to become more like you, that you would transform us from the inside out. And Father, we, um, we ask for your help now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word today. Um, Father, um, we need your help, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so today we're covering the second half of the Beatitudes. Um, Last week, well, really two weeks ago, we covered the verses 3 through 6, and then today we're picking up doing 7 through 12. 12. Um, uh, as a way to remind us of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the Sermon of the Mount covers Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Uh, the picture behind me is is a very different day than we're experiencing here. Um, normally, we see sunshine and blue skies. Uh, we're all excited for the rain. It happens to us like three times a year, I think. Uh, but this picture was taken, um, from what is what is referred to today as the, of the Mount of Beatitudes, um, we don't know if it's the exact spot, but it's, it, it is essentially the location, um, the general area where Jesus would have taught from. Um, if you were sitting in this story, uh, listening to Jesus, this is kind of what your view would be. You would be able to look to the left and see Decapolis and the rest of Sea of Galilee. Uh, but Jesus would have had the lake behind him and the people sort of in a natural sort of um, amphitheater setting where he would be able to project his voice. Um, This is believed to be the greatest sermon that has been ever preached, these three chapters, um, by believers, by non-believers, those who study rhetoric and speech and influence. They would say that this is the greatest speech that was ever delivered. Um, Often politicians and non-believers will quote from portions of this um this this sermon, which I find particularly interesting because um it's not like they're subjecting themselves to the whole um, harshness difficulty um, to what Jesus says here, but they 'll pull bits and pieces from it and they 'll use it for whatever point um, they're trying to make this this sermon in these three chapters. It, is, it demonstrates Jesus' teaching on the kingdom. If we were to go back to chapter 4, as Matthew sort of gives an overview of the life and ministry of Jesus, we see in verse 17, he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Down in verse 23, it says that Jesus was going um, throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so when you read that, there's no definition or explanation of what is this kingdom that he's proclaiming? What was Jesus teaching? Uh, Matthew uh, presents Jesus' teaching very forward in his writing. So as we get, got into chapter 5 two weeks ago, this is laying out um, Jesus' sermon, his message, his explanation of the kingdom. This passage is not a teaching on how to gain eternal life. Um, this could be very discouraging if you read this and you think that I have to do all of these things in order uh, to get right with God. That, th- this is not at all um, a message on how to get eternal life, but it's a message of what eternal life looks like displayed in the person who has received received it. Um, this Sermon can do a number of things as we go through this over the next few months. Um, there have been many over the centuries who've come to Jesus's teaching and they have pushed back so violently against it that they want nothing to do with his teaching. And this could be you that you read this. And if you don't know Christ, you say, I don't want any part of this. Um, for those of us who know Christ, what this sermon should stir up is it should stir up sort of a longing within us that there is within us the Spirit of God dwells for those of us who have trusted in Christ. And there should be within us, I want more of this. I want this in my life. But we also understand that we also have our flesh and we none of us have met the standard that is laid out in here. Um, I believe it's a lot of what I said two weeks ago, uh, what Paul lays out in Philippians 320 through four one He explains that when you receive Christ, when you become a Christian, you essentially are given a new passport, that you become a citizen of heaven. And so while we are on this earth, while we are living in this life, uh, we are citizens of heaven. And within us, there is this desire, this longing uh, for uh, the principles, for the rules, the, the way God intended for things to be. We long for that deep within our souls. But Paul also says there, don't lose heart, press on, continue in Christ. And so as we come to this, we realize our shortcomings and it drops us to our knees. It forces us to cling to Christ, to long for his grace. And it's an overwhelming thing as God ministers to us and displays his grace upon us. I do want to give a caution over the next few months, and really for all of the, for every time that you study the Bible or go to a, 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 to hear a sermon preached, um, the the best way to handle a sermon is to expose yourself to it. Meaning, uh, what we shouldn't be saying is, "Oh, it would be so great if so and so was here to hear this message." This is exactly what Johnny Ray needs to hear. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, I'm good. This isn't talking to me. I've conquered this. When we come to the scripture, we should come before the word. We should hear it and just naturally assume that you're guilty. <laughs> like it, it it really is the best way and is at the heart of this. As we review the Sermon on the Mount, remember the very first thing that Jesus says in verse 3. By way of review, getting into our text, the very first beatitude. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only two of the beatitudes are in the present tense. It's this one and the very last one that we'll look at today. This idea of poor is used to describe beggars. Give the impression that this is a beggar who... um, is just beaten down and broken that they are completely and totally bankrupt and abused and they have nothing at all uh, it's the picture of a of a person who as they're begging they're shielding their faith they're they're cringing as they're asking for help a, a perfect picture luke brings it up sharing about uh, a parable of jesus found in luke chapter 18 verses 1 through 10 and Jesus tells the parable of the, the Pharisee who's at the temple praying. And he's standing before everyone. And he says, Lord, I thank you that I am not like that man over there. That I am this and I give. And he's totally boasting about himself. And Jesus says, but then the, the tax collector is not even able to look at the temple. He's over there with his head down, pounding his chest, weeping in agony broken in spirit basically saying lord please have mercy on me that is broken in spirit and this truth transcends really all of Jesus's teaching that this is the 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 primary the ultimate posture that i believe that god wants from us is this it's not to be financially poor this is to be poor in spirit to realize that you and I are spiritually bankrupt. We bring absolutely nothing to the table in way of righteousness. Um, The next thing that we come to is in verse four, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And this idea of mourning, this is a a deep-seated sorrow, um, agony, heartbreak. It's a word that would be used for someone who has lost a loved one to death. And it's this picture of mourning over your sinfulness that you realize how wretched you are deep within yourself. Um, It reminds me of Paul in Romans 7. It's funny looking at theologians who argue that they say, well, this is the apostle Paul. He, He couldn't be talking about himself in the present tense, but he's absolutely speaking about himself in the present tense. He goes in Romans 7 verses 20 through 24 that there are things that he desires to do. Those things he doesn't do. The things that he doesn't want to do, those are the things that he ends up doing. And by verse 24, he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And it points him to Christ. It's beautiful. And then Jesus goes on and he says, blessed are the gentle or the meek for they shall inherit the earth this picture of meekness is a person who has been broken by the cross they're not easily offended they 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 don't get their feathers ruffled they understand that when jesus died on the cross it just wasn't for the sins of the world but it was for their very sin sort of when we come to that place it sort of takes the swagger out of our step like i am nothing special my sin caused his death. I'm just thankful that God allows me to, to, to share in his ministry, to serve others, to, to be here. I don't, I don't have a big uh, agenda. I think this is what he's saying. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And then in verse 6, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. This is one of the Beatitudes that, in going through this, has really jumped out at me. Um, What is repentance? In the first five chapters of Matthew, we've seen repentance a handful of times. We see that that was John the Baptist's message, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We're told that Jesus, when he began his ministry, that it began with the, the proclamation of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what is repentance? It's, in some ways, it is turning from sin and turning towards God. But the fear is that some, sometimes repentance, it's so easy to create a, a checklist of things that we're not supposed to do. And my checklist of things that I shouldn't do is probably very different from your checklist. But we like creating checklists of things that we think are wrong that we need to repent from and then placing them on other people. Now, the fruit of repentance, I believe, is this, that as we repent, as we turn to Christ, as we receive him as Savior, there's something that changes within us. There's this hunger and thirst for righteousness. There's this deep desire that we would be more like Christ. And I think that that's the fruit of repentance. Now, the first four, um, from the Baker Commentary and others, they observe this. The first four Beatitudes show that divine approval means one has humbled, has been humbled under God's mighty hand through the kingdom message. The second part of the Beatitudes, which describe the pattern of divine approval relating to people. So if you look at these, the first, what is it, three or four of them, poor in spirit, inward attitude mourning inward attitude gentle or meekness inward attitude perception of self hunger and longing for righteousness something within and then as we turn the corner the next three we see blessed are the merciful blessed are the pure in heart blessed are the peacemakers the first one this blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy what was the context what was going on? And MacArthur had a very good sort of historical outline, background to what was going on. And he writes a popular Roman philosopher called mercy, the disease of the soul. It was, this, it was the supreme sign of weakness. Mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man, and especially a real Roman. The Romans glorified manly courage, strict justice, firm discipline and above all absolute power. They looked down on mercy because mercy to them was weakness and weakness was despised above all other human limitations. I've noticed that when it comes to mercy, we're all really good. We all desire to receive mercy, but when it comes to giving mercy, we're, we don't necessarily have that mastered. Um, the Beatitudes, there's something about them. These aren't commands. These aren't word in the way. Um, Those who follow me, you will be rewarded if you do this. These are more proverbial statements. These are statements that express truisms. They're, they're statements that I like to refer to, and I need to incorporate more into my messages, are what I think of as like biblical beef jerky. I noticed at Christmas this year, I got a ton of beef jerky. It was awesome. And like people are, like, gift after gift was coming in, I'm like, why are so many people from the church giving me beef jerky? I mean, I'm not complaining about it. And most people say, well, you talk about beef jerky a lot in your messages, so we know. So I want to just remind everybody, I do like beef jerky. Um, but 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 biblical beef jerky, it's things that we put into ourselves. We don't just read this and skim over it. The way Jesus starts his sermon, this introduction, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Hmm. As we try to memorize things, I'm horrible with memorization. I try to memorize scripture. I'm not like an Awana's kid that can memorize in 30 seconds and spit it out. That doesn't mean that I don't try to memorize what I found in my imperfective, imperfect, imperfect, they got to put the emphasis in the right spot for the word to work. When I try to memorize scripture, even though I don't necessarily spit it out perfectly, the beauty of memorization, if that's what I'm doing, is it forces me to sort of ponder the words, and it's tinkering around, like, blessed are the merciful. What does it mean to be merciful? One area that I realized that I really struggle with, with being merciful, is in that, if you're a male between like, I don't know where the limit is, maybe 14, 13, maybe, I don't know, to like 25, there's a young male region where I have like, my ability to display mercy or to be merciful to that age range, very, very difficult for me. And I don't get it. Like, I don't, I think it's from my time of being a SEAL instructor, seeing all of these young men come through that there's something about that age range that just makes me snap. And I have zero, like, very little tolerance. And I don't like that feeling that I get inside where I just want to, like, bust some young man's heads, uh, you know, to wake him up. Like, it's hard for me. But then I start looking back at my age at that time. Man, if I was a 14 to 25-year-old kid at this church this church like i don't even like it might be burned to the ground there might be like eggings on the side of the church there would definitely be broken tiles on the roof from whatever shenanigans i was trying to get do i did so much stupid like resisting evading arrest during that window in my life stuff i received so much mercy But receiving all that mercy, like, I don't, like, why is it that I have not become merciful to that category of person? I don't know. I'm still working through it. And I really am trying to get better, even though every now and again, I'm like, stop running through the hallway. Stick my foot out. Trip them, you know, slow down. But when I think about Jesus' example, in the English, when we read through the Gospels, we'll come to the spot where it the English describes that Jesus was being crucified. and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing or something close to that. But see, thats it's in the Greek and as a way that could be interpreted that throughout the whole process, he repeated that statement over and over and over and over again. Talk about mercy. That here Christ going to the cross, the one who created the whole universe, the one who created each one of us, the one who has... Ultimate authority, the one who is without sin, is being beaten to a bloody pulp, would ultimately have his life taken by these humans that created him, that he created. And yet through this process, he's praying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. There's like no greater picture of what a merciful person is. And Jesus is saying the person who enters into the kingdom, blessed are the merciful. Happiness, blessedness. And being merciful for they shall receive mercy. And this isn't from other humans. He's saying from God. And if we follow the New Testament out, we'll see in other places that the follower of Christ should be merciful because they've received so much mercy. I can't tell you how many times before I was a Christian that I said, oh Lord, I just I want fairness. <laughs> just shows how ignorant I was. <laughs> Showed how little understanding I had of my own sinfulness and how wicked and how much punishment I deserve. That then when I received the mercy of Christ and literally to this day, the question not is I want fairness is, Lord, how could you, with tears in my eyes, like, how could you be so merciful to me? How could you be so gracious to me? How could you be so kind to me? How do you treat people in your workplace, your family, your children? I was sort of asking myself this, kind of going, well, how do I treat people? Am I merciful? Last night, Anna and I were kind of talking. I'm like, well, Maybe we should ask each other, like, hey, am I a merciful person? And then we really quickly were like, well, if I'm not a merciful person asking you if I'm a merciful person, they're going to lie to you. Because <laughs> if you're not merciful, that that means that if somebody is, like, lovingly with the truth, saying, you know what, you probably should, like, ease up. Like, that's not going to go over well <laughs> because you're not a merciful. So it might be better for you to just chew on it examine yourself this week as you leave church today and you're driving down the rainy road and that guy cuts you off are you merciful to them are you merciful to your children when they break something are you merciful to your spouse when they mess up which we all mess up are you merciful at your workplace i i believe that jesus wants us to ponder these things and if we've received his mercy, we should become like him. He goes on to verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And this picture of purity is sort of the, the, the refining process, the, the, the burning out the impurities. And I love this, that as we come to Christ, as we receive his spirit, as a sanctification process takes over... We become more like him. And then as we're purified, it says look at they shall see God. That's the the, the the purer the heart is. And in our world in my coming to Christ, as I have so much contamination from the world, from the system that often we even as Christians don't see clearly. And I love this song that we say. You know, there's there's some songs that are, you know, are like, have a lot of big words. Like that one song we sang today, like I need a dictionary for half those words. Like what is, I don't even, I can't even remember what the words, like what is it? I want to raise something. What, a Ebenezer. I need to look that up. Does anybody, I, never mind, I don't want to get sidetracked. The, there's, it's a beautiful song. I'm not knocking the song. Don't let me get, don't get sidetracked here. Like, I'm talking to myself. But then this song, Refiner's Fire, I think of it as like this super powerful song that has had just so much influence in my life as I've started to walk with Christ. I'm like, oh, I want to get down the words. So I, I Googled the words and I paste in there. I'm reading the words. I'm like, these words aren't really that deep. There's like not a lot here. But then, the issue though is, Worship is not just, well, Ben gave us a I, Ben scolded me already on worship. I accidentally used it. I want to be very careful here not to. When we sing and we're worshiping through music, it's not the same as like just singing a song for the rhythm. W- worshiping through music is, it should be that in our hearts, we are singing to our creator that we are worshiping him. that That it is almost a prayer. And then when I look at these simple words, purify my heart, let me be his gold and precious silver. Purify my heart, let me be his gold, pure gold, refiner's fire. Then I get to the one line that is like, man, when I sing that, did I even think about what I was saying? Do I? See, the, the power of this song is when your heart is actually in tune with the words. Because how many of us saying the words, and this is not a show of hands, my heart's one desire is to be holy. Set apart for you, Lord. Like that's a that's a huge statement to God saying that I I want to be set apart. I want to be holy. I want to be pure. I choose to be holy, set apart for you, my Master, ready to do your will. Purify my heart, cleanse me from within and make me holy. Purify my heart, cleanse me from my sin. Deep within. And I think that this song reflects the prayer or the heart behind this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Like we want that purity. We want that cleansing because I want him more and more and myself corrupts everything. And then we get to the one that I wanted to spend some time on. I got to look at the right clock because I looked down, I'm like, man, I'm like 25 minutes late. I'm like, wait. They go, oh, no, we got a whole lot of time, guys. <laughs> I believe that the Beatitudes are sort of building and that they're like perfect blocks that as he describes them, they sort of build upon one another, starting from blessed are the poor in spirit, this, this spiritual bankruptness. Down to where we started today are being merciful, being pure in heart, and then we come, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This one seems very significant to me. The other ones, receive mercy, see God. This one suddenly says, shall be called sons of God. And if we follow that phrase, That's a big deal. That means that you're a child of God, which then sort of leads to the the implication that when you are functioning or the person who is functioning in this capacity, the person who is a peacemaker in that moment, blessed is the person they shall be called sons of God, which indicates that in this moment you're most like God, that you would be considered his child. And so what does the word peacemaker mean? This is one of those words that I've, I have way more study on this word than probably a lot of other words in, in the Bible. And so I need to guard myself um, without going into, I have a thesis you can have if you want on this word. But um, but this is like the the launching point for pacifism. This is sort of the the foundation that most pacifists will come to this verse, and Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, and they they, they launch this word into um, dealing with like physical violence, use of force, those sorts of things. Um, there's not really a whole lot of foundation for that. Um, this is the only word, time that this word in the Greek is used in the whole New Testament. Instead of focusing on that background, I want to focus on what is it saying? What does it mean? The word literally means someone who makes peace, someone who actively works to bring peace and reconciliation where there's hostility. Um, Peacemakers actively go about seeking to make peace. It's not somebody who is passive, who will hide in the corner and just say, I'm not going to get involved in ruffling any feathers. There can be squabbling over there. I'm just... I'm going to disengage and I'm going to be sort of Switzerland. I'm going to be neutral. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing anything. That is not what this word is saying. This is an active uh, case for somebody who is making peace. God is the ultimate peacemaker. We were at war with him. Our sin separates us from with him for those of us who have received christ as savior we are no longer at war with him we have peace with him through the reconciliation that jesus did on our behalf on the cross jesus god the they are god is the ultimate peacemaker um i have an illustration that i've been told to be careful with My lovely bride told me to be careful on this one, so I'll be careful on this one. Um, About eight years ago is when I started doing lots of ride-alongs with with cops. Um, Prior to that point, my law enforcement understanding came from the show Cops. So I was extremely disappointed when I started doing ride-alongs and to discover that very rarely is there ever an incident for cops that is, like, worthy of the show Cops. I thought on my first ride-along, I'd be going to, like, fist-to-cuff helping the officers every single time, like, intervening. So as I started doing ride-alongs, and the reason I bring this up is because cops are often referred to as peacemakers or peacekeepers. Um, like, I don't, this is just my math. I have no idea, but I want to say about 98% of calls that officers respond to are calls that could have been like, dealt with if there was just like an adult on the scene. Somebody who was a peacemaker. Like, hey, you need to calm down. Just go to your bedroom. You go over here, and in the morning we'll talk when everybody's calmed down. Like, it was shocking to me at how many calls I would respond to where the officer was more like a therapist or a pastor, sort of like, there's two people squabbling, and all the officers are trying to do is to get everybody to calm down and to be peaceful with one another and to sort of fix their situation so that they could live at peace. Uh, cops are not going onto scenes to like, hey, let's bust out our guns, let's start tasing people, let's do that. Like, like they are trying to get the situation disengaged so that they can walk away and get back to their job. Shocking to me. That, that that riding along, it just showed me like how often if a neighbor would just go over and knock on the door of their neighbor and say, hey, you're doing this, could you calm down, that things would be resolved. Or that within the home, if people would just be a peacemaker. The New Testament calls for all of us to live at peace with one another. What I noticed, see, I did something different. I hope you guys know. I only wrote Matthew 5, 1 through 12, because when Ben preached the other day or the other time, like, I don't know, it could have been like months ago. I don't know which one it was. But I sat down and he had a whole bunch of verses. And as I was like the student, I said, I'm like, oh, wow, we're covering a lot of Bible today. That's like, it was kind of intimidating. And so today there would have been a whole lot of Bible, but I didn't want to do that to you guys. Like, so I'm going to read a whole bunch of verses. Don't worry about where they are. I'll give you them. If you really want to know where they are, I will be happy to tell you all of these verses. Um, but here's some verses where we're commanded as Christians to be at peace with one another. Mark 9:50 says, "Be at peace with one another." Romans 12:18 says, "If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all." 2 Corinthians 13:11 says, "Live in peace with one another." 1 Thessalonians 5:13 says, "Be at peace among yourselves." The Bible continues And shows that we're supposed to actively pursue peace. Listen to some of these words. Let us pursue what makes for peace. Romans 14, 19. Strive for peace with everyone. Hebrews 12, 14. That word strive. That's like an athlete running, pressing to the end. We're told as Christians that we're to strive, that we're to pursue peace with this intensity. Let him seek peace and pursue it, 1 Peter 3.11. So flee youthful passions and pursue peace, 2 Timothy 2.22. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you are called to one body, Colossians 3.15. The Bible makes it very clear that as followers of Christ, that we are supposed to be actively engaging in bringing peace. To take this from the opposite, the opposite of peacemaking is criticism and fault-finding. Someone who is divisive, who is careless with words, complainers, grumblers, gossips, troublemakers, critics. Like a contagious disease, grumbling generates conflict, confusion, and unhappiness that quickly spread throughout the whole church body. Until all are infected with discontent. J.A. Moydier says this, nowhere does self-centered heart of a man more quickly take control than through the machinery of criticism. And this is one of those, when I look at Peacemaker, now I'm the first to confess, I am like type A, OCD, critical, perfectionist. I've, God has surrounded me by those that are not like me, thank the Lord, who have been able to laugh at me and to help me to kind of see um, how this goes. Ben and I are always laughing. Like last night, I, the chairs just got to the point where I couldn't take it anymore. And so I snuck in here last night and I made sure that they were all lined up. Nice. And I, I don't know what you guys do every week. You like totally go about and you mess up the chairs. And you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, Benjamin, I'm going to jump over the chair. And he's in the age range of that young man. <laughs> Pushing. I'm working on mercy. He didn't set the church on fire. That's good. But but so to kind of, to recognize, like, okay, I, and I could sit here and point and say, hey, guys, I really, when you guys leave, can you just fix your chairs? like, Because, you know, when we have visitors come in, like, I'm pretty sure that basically by you messing up your chair, it's going to cause somebody from not accepting Christ because they're going to walk in here, and they're going to see messed up chairs, and they're going to think that we're not hospitable, and so... Please, just stop messing up the chairs. We want perfection. We want hospit And we can take this out to such an extreme of searching for perfection that what we're actually doing is we are creating division. We're hurting people's feelings. That I, I do think that there's, and maybe it's me because of my wiring, that there can be no greater harm done to some people in you giving what you think is good constructive criticism to help them out and so for those of us who might be a little critical my fear is that those of us who are a little bit critical we don't see that we're a little bit critical uh, this isn't for bonnie ray or jimmy jimmy john this is I'm trying to think of names that we don't have around here the, 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 like do, do like beef jerky Blessed are the peacemakers. Like to really check your heart. Um, The peacemaker is not concerned with the self-life. The opposite of a peacemaker is one who is self-focused. They are concerned with their own rights, their own lives, their own needs, their own feelings. And in the, the last I don't know how like year six months. I've been this growing sense of conviction that God deeply, deeply, deeply cares about the unity within the body of Christ. Um, it was really fun for me to see the Wagnells last week. I hadn't seen them in man since before before they went to Africa. Uh, Joe and I were good. We, we, I mean, we're still good friends. I don't want to use past tense. Um, but, but probably, man, probably like 10 to 12 years ago, Joe and I would so argue. We would, we wouldn't yell and scream, but we would be at a Bible study and we would so get into it over just stupid issues. I'll never forget one time we were arguing, he was totally wrong about the (laughs) About end times. And so we were arguing. I was trying to set him straight. He's still not straight. I, uh, we're in this huge argument over when Christ was going to return. And then midway through the Bible study, like this is a Bible study that was more of a, it was more a display of two guys debating. And I looked over and I recognized like 30 minutes into our argument over when Christ was going to come. And I was trying to show him he was wrong. That that there was this girl who had never come, and she wasn't a Christian. And it was like both of us sort of like got zinged. And it was like, oh man, like we're so like absorbed in like being right in our own preference and this, that then last week I tried to stir the pot early Sunday morning last week. There was Ben, and there's Joe, and I was here. And I tried to throw the end times like grenade to them. And the grenade went off, and they just both went there and kept drinking their coffee. I'm like, man, what's up? You like grew up, Joe. I'm still like immature, like trying to start the start the, the arguing. And then that night as we got home and we were sitting over lunch or dinner, um I I remember looking at Joe and saying, Well, I found that over the years I've I'm like I've become softer in certain things, that I've I'm not caring about some issues and I and like not uh, that don't like the first service I think took this more politically they laughed and I I said well I'm not going liberal but I I still have deep seated convictions but the things in which I feel are worth arguing about are getting smaller and smaller and smaller like there are key doctrines that, that that I will fight and I will argue over but I'm realizing that most of the stuff that we as Christians argue about is just silly stuff Silly, silly stuff. And he's like, oh, I agree. Like sitting around the hangar, when I look around the hangar bay in Africa, that if I was as contentious as I was before, I couldn't work with any of these people. But we all love Jesus. We all feel very strongly. And uh, I could tell he'd matured a lot. I've matured a, a little bit. Um, no, I still have a long way to go. But I think at the heart of this, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's a huge statement, to be called the son of, like, the sons of God. Because I think at God's heart, and I can say this from the high priestly prayer of Jesus' last night, the one thing he prayed for us, the church, is that we would have unity. He cares deeply about unity. And so there's a caution for us. who give constructive criticism. I will use constructive criticism. I think constructive criticism is good. But my feeling is that most of us think we're being constructive critics when we're really being divisive and critical of others. And so I would ask us to truly, prayerfully, with all of these, really ask the Lord, Lord, help me to become a peacemaker, that I would actively pursue peace, that I would actively be passionate about guarding the unity of my church and churches in our community and around our county and nation. And then the the tide shifts in verse 10. I got to look at the right clock. I'm like, ooh, wow. There's a shift here. There are some that would say the Beatitudes sort of end in verse 9. But clearly, verses 10 through 12 are a Beatitude, but they're, they take a, total, a, a different shift and a tone. Jesus says, blessed or happy are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Circle that word righteousness. It doesn't say blessed are those who have been persecuted for being a jerk, for being foolish, for being... Eat mean-spirited, it, it, it says blessed are those who've been persecuted for the sake of righteousness for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So this is the first time where, where the rest are in, see if I can get this right, third person plural, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But now we get to hear, in its second person, he's speaking to the people here. We see you. It would be y'all. Blessed are you all when you're persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say all sorts of evil against you because of me. To think of his crowd, his disciples, all of the disciples. were put to death for their faith, except for John. Well, Judas doesn't count. We kind of lump him out. But when you look at the early church, a huge portion of believers, that when they came and gave their lives to Christ, they were cut out of their family, they were beaten, they were murdered, horrible kinds of evil and i look at this passage and i especially thinking about this over the last three weeks trying to figure out how 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 to handle this here in the united states we are not persecuted in the united states for being christians I, i like We as Christians in the United States are super, super, super soft, super, super, super sensitive. The the fact that the most of our nation and the most of the people around us don't follow Christ and they think differently, that's not really persecution. There are isolated events, of course, where there is true persecution. Um, I ran through Columbine High School after like, uh, I think it was like two years after the shooting. That was a clear case of persecution for faith, that somebody was executed for their faith. It happens here, but in large part, we as Christians are not persecuted for our faith. Um, you know, a few years ago, I I saw, you know, persecution is not losing your tax-exempt status for tithing to a church. We We, we who are Christians who give and contribute, in, in our giving, we don't do that for the tax write-off at the end of the year. It's nice. We are all in taxes, and it's nice. But we don't give. For, there's nothing in scripture that says give so that you can max out your tax uh, write-off at the end of the year. That's not what it's. That's not why we do it. And so, if at some point they take away that, that's not persecution. We might disagree with it. In the last three weeks. Praying over this text and, and thinking about it and chewing on it as Bible beef jerky. To see those 21 Coptic Christians walk out on the beach to have their throats slit for being Christians. I know a Coptic Christian. And and I haven't had the heart to kind of go through and to kind of go face by face yet. Because I don't want to, I'm I'm afraid that I'll see him. When I was a SEAL instructor however many years ago that was, we put through two Egyptian officers. And one of them was a really skinny guy that had a whole lot of heart. And I remember me and another Christian friend of mine started like talking and saying, hey, so what's your deal? Like, why do you have so much passion? You're like one of the best foreign students we've ever had. He said, he looked at us and he said, if if I fail out of here, when I go home, they're going to execute me and they're going to build my family for the whole cost of the school so that they can imprison them. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're, time out, time out. <laughs> we were kind of messing around. What? <laughs> He's like, I'm a Coptic Christian. I'm like, what's a Coptic Christian? He's like, well, there's a group of us in Egypt that go back to, to the, you know, the Enoch, whatever, the eunuch, eunuch. And he's like, there's a group of us that are believers and we're under extreme persecution. And it like rocked my whole, like just learning about like what they were going through. Here I was an American Christian and seeing this guy and now seeing these 21 of these Coptic Christians being executed. Like that's persecution. Like that's, that's what this is. And, And I know that when I look at the news and I see those 21 orange jumpsuits the Navy seal comes out of me and I think if that was me, there's going to be a couple broken noses at least. Like there, I'm not, but then I read this past, I'm just kind of giving you guys my flesh side of like what I'm thinking when I see that, like, sorry if I got a little too open there, but there's like, but then I read this and I'm seeing this and I'm seeing like my nature of what I, as sort of like a defender, how I would respond. And then I'm got bible ping pong bouncing around in my head blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil because against you because of me he says rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great in the same way they persecuted the prophets how did they persecute the prophets they killed the prophets who were before you. I've heard all sorts of reports. I don't know if any of them have been verified or how they would verify them. But there's reports of these 21 guys, the things that they were saying. I think there's a special sort of grace if any one of us who know Christ finds herself in a situation where our life is in a line and that we are going to have our lives taken. You can go to the voice of the martyrs and read all sorts of stories. But this just, like right off the bat, this whole the Beatitudes as Jesus opens up, I think it's a fair statement, especially by the end, that nothing that Jesus says here isn't in line with the whole prosperity gospel. Like these are his believers who would give their life, whose lives would be radically transformed, not because all of their relationships were basically because they, they all got better when they came to christ they didn't all suddenly get wealthy J- jesus there's this charge to count the cost and all the blessed happiness joy like jesus wants us to experience joy i love it rejoice and be glad He's not beating them up. Verse 12 sort of helps me to see the tone of, of all of the Sermon on the Mount. I see Jesus with a smile, rejoice and be glad for your reward. in heaven is great. And the more Christians I meet from around the world, and particularly those that don't speak my language or those dear saints who have been walking with the Lord for many, many years... There's a universal joy in their eyes that that I can't exp- that I can't convey. Th- that our rejoicing and our gladness isn't found in this life; it's in the next. And so, what can we do? So I read this: "Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and." falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me i think probably my first persecution was that i took the nick i went from being the dirty bird in the seal teams to spending some time in bahrain where there was a bully alley and then my new nickname became the holy roller and it was total harassment but i didn't mind being called the holy roller um like, that wasn't that much persecution, like, but it was a little bit, I mean, it was like a little, like, just like a little bit of persecution. And so when we find ourselves facing persecution, facing resistance, don't, like, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus says those who follow him will face persecution. When I look at what's going on in other parts of the world, like in some ways I feel helpless, but I do feel that we can pray, that we can earnestly pray for the authorities that have been placed over us, that we would pray for our nation. Like I believe that our, innovation, our nation, that they would provide some sort of protection that other nations around the world. When I read the scripture, the only thing I can see that this, that, that the governing authorities are here for and they're, they're ordained by God in Romans 13 is that they're to restrain evil, that they are to bring the wrath of God on those who do evil so that we can live at peace. And so I think that we should really truly pray for the authorities, for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing Horrific persecution that we can't even begin to imagine because we are so soft and so sensitive about what persecution is. And what I see in this, as he goes through all of these things that are countercultural, he doesn't tell that the blessing is in becoming like the culture around, that there's a very clear distinction from the culture in which they live. And as those who are entering the kingdom, who have character, uh, the kingdom characteristics about them, as they live this way, what I think on one hand, as we live distinct from those around us, from the worldview around us, it can bring persecution, yes. But on the other side, We'll see that we become salt and light. And some will respond. Some will see the distinction. Some will say, why is it that you're different? That it will create an opportunity to tell them about the king of this kingdom. And next week, verses 13 through 16, this is where Jesus goes. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless... How can it be made salty again? Then he's going to talk about the light and this call for us in the midst of persecution, the midst of resistance, in the midst of swimming against the stream of our culture. There is not a call to isolation. There's a call to proclamation. So as we end, the question for us to resolve or to, to think through, to pray through is have you reached a place where you understand your deep and continuing need for Christ and his grace? This isn't a command for us to try to do all of these works to earn favor with God. You have no righteousness. We each are poor in spirit. The only righteousness we have is that which Christ has imputed to us. Imputed is a theological term that means... That your account has been credited with somebody else's stuff. That Christ's righteousness has become ours. You, we bring absolutely nothing to the table. And as we read this, it should drop us to our knees and to cling to him. I pray that we would humble ourselves before him. And that we would long for his righteousness. May we truly become a people that reflect his kingdom. And Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for this day. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that you are a God who deals with us with great mercy, with great grace, with great love. Father, I pray that as we're transformed from the inside out, as you do your work in our lives, as you help us to become more like you through your work of sanctification, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to become a merciful people because we have received much mercy. Father, I pray that you would cleanse us deep within, that you would give us pure hearts, And Father, I pray that you would help us to be peacemakers. Father, guard our hearts from grumbling, from complaining, from critiquing. Lord, help us to see clearly our actions. Lord, help us not to be divisive, critical people, Lord, but may we bring unity to the body. Father, we desire to love you more. We need you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name and